Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. Today on the podcast, we speak with Mark Hurst. Mark is the founder and CEO of Creative Good, the New York-based consultancy and creative platform that he founded in 1997. He has spent his career writing, speaking, and advising teams on how to create better products and services. For over two decades, Mark and his team at Creative Good have advised a wide range of clients in media, healthcare, technology, financial services, e-commerce, and more about how to build better businesses by treating customers well. He also hosts a podcast called Tectonic at tectonic.fm. Here's our conversation with Mark. So we're really happy to be in conversation with Mark Hurst today for another episode of the Chasing Faith podcast. Mark, uh, Mark, I think a way to begin would be for you to introduce yourselves to the rest of our listeners. Um, I would invite you to maybe reflect on how it is that you wound up having a relationship with Christ Church, and uh, and then after that, we'll we'll dig in in, in a little bit on your uh, professional side and and see where that might lead us into your interests. Okay, so Mark, uh, sure, go ahead. Well, thanks for inviting me, Steve and Brandon. Uh, I am a listener to the Chasing Faith podcast, and so it's a pleasure to. Um, to be on the show myself. Uh, I am somewhat of a generalist today. I have a focus on technology. I'm a consultant and a writer and a speaker, and I've launched some things, um, which we'll get into. Uh, I grew up as a um, as the son of a naval officer. As um, naval families often do, we moved around a lot, and in fact, by the time I was five years old, I had lived on three different continents, uh, yeah. North America and Europe and Asia. We were living in the Philippines for a couple of years. Um, mostly grew up in the South. Uh, both my parents are from the South, um, 10 years on the Gulf Coast, and, um, and then went to school in the Boston area and then came to New York shortly after that. Um, we always went to church every Sunday, whatever Protestant church we happened to be going to, wherever we were living. Sometimes it was just the, the Protestant church on base. Um, and uh, one time was Presbyterian, and we were in Methodist churches. So I didn't draw a big distinction between the denominations, but it was a um, uh, uh, normal rhythm of the week that we would... Um, go to church and be involved in some way in the church community, wherever we were living. And um, d during college, like a lot of college students, I took some time off <laughs> from church <laughs> to reevaluate. <laughs> and, um, and then after college, I, um, by the time I had graduated and moved to the New York area, I was full on into a search for some kind of foundation, um, spiritual, philosophical, intellectual, and we can 
dive into that more if you want, but I was able to uh, build up sufficiently to the point where I finally came, and, and it was, a lot of it was through books, um, and eventually I came across the book The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck, which older listeners will remember as being on the New York Times bestseller list for how many years, Steve? I Over 13. Yeah, so it was a giant bestseller. In fact, I had seen that book on my parents' bookshelf growing up, but I, I never read it until after college. And from that book, I got involved with uh, Scotty's uh, and his wife's uh, foundation, called the Foundation for Community Encouragement, and that's where you and I met. And, and how, old were you, how old were you then? When you and I met, I was um, 25. I remember it very well, summer of 98. We were at a big, basically the annual conference of this community building organization uh, that happened to be held in Seattle that year. And um, I was meeting different people there for the first time. It was my first time at the big conference. And someone said, oh, you're from New York. You should meet Steve. And I said, well, okay, well, what, what does Steve do? And they said, well, he's a Methodist minister. I said, oh, my gosh, come oh, on. Oh, sweet Jesus, yeah. Come on. <laughs> so um, I, was, I was a little, you know, skeptical going into our first conversations. But, you know, one thing led to another. And um, here I am, been a member of Christ Church for, I, I, I can't even remember when I officially joined uh, uh, around 20 years ago. And then, uh, yeah, life evolved, didn't it, from there? And uh, beautiful thing, how your life evolved. I always considered it a great serendipity that someone told you to come say hello. <laughs> well, there weren't too many New Yorkers at that conference, so really, Steve. No, I know. You're about the only choice. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Good point. It was it, it, <laughs> it was very serendipitous. I mean, it it um, you know our your and my relationship has been one of the most important in my life over the years, and my experiences, you know, within the community and the activities and everything that goes on within Christ Church. Also, um, all of that has been deeply important and foundational to me and what I've done outside of the church um, over those years. Yeah. And I, it, we can put maybe some muscle tissue around that going forward. That is the, how it aligns into what you do professionally, what your deep, deep passions are today. But is there a, did you have a, um, what kind of a journey did you have into a Christian, a, you know, a Christian experience? as your own person, as opposed to having grown up in something. Um, can you say something about that? We don't need to spend a lot of time there, but I think our listeners would find that interesting and foundational to our conversation. Yeah, well, again, I, it's, I think, going to be a familiar story to a lot of the listeners. Um, as I said, having grown up, going to church every Sunday, and then taking some time off during college, um, it was a moment for me to really look around at um, different 
modes of thought, um, different thinkers, different writers, uh, different people who I knew, just really being open to um, different ways of engaging this, this, I, I guess, this, this layer of life. And for me, um, I remember when I left college, I happened to get a job outside of New York City. It was in Westchester County. So uh, a lot of people at the company where I was working lived in New York City, lived in Manhattan, but I chose to live um, close to the company. So I ended up living in Westchester for several years. And people thought that was strange, this young single guy living outside New York City. What are you doing? Um, and it was a little strange, but it was helpful to me in the sense that it gave me some time and space apart to uh, a little bit of solitude, actually, to really wrestle with some of these topics. And it was um, books, really, were the, my primary way of, of um, moving that inquiry, that, that search forward. So I told you about um, Scotty Peck's book. I, I actually read, I think I read everything, just about everything that um, Peck wrote so I was really interested in whatever he was working on, which you know turned out to be the foundation for community encouragement. Um, but there were other books along the way. Um, early on, some some people may remember that um, that PBS series, The Power of Myth. Yes, of course, uh, Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell yes. um, being interviewed was, by Bill Moyers. Yeah. So that was early on. That was foundational for me to say, look, there are a lot of. Yeah, the, the, it, it, to me, it was like an invitation. There's, there's a lot more here um, that a lot of people have been exploring for a long time. For whatever reason, I, that was just a real eye opener. That book for me. Um, yeah. There was a book uh, that was popular in the '70s called um, "Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance." Yep, big deal. Yeah, that was a. That was a very influential book, and actually still is to me to this day. Oh, that's interesting, Robert, Robert Persig. I have all that was one of the most important books I ever read. Um, and then along the same lines, another really influential book, which doesn't sound spiritual at all, but I but it, I think it's it's it has a very important message, is a book um, called Gödel Escher Bach, by Richard um, Douglas. Which one is it? Is it Douglas or by Douglas Hofstetter? <laughs> and uh, this book um, looked at the work of the mathematician Gödel, and then the the composer Bach and right. the artist uh, Escher. And interestingly, I came away with a connection between the Hofstetter book and um, and the Persig book that has something to do with uncertainty at the heart of of any serious inquiry. And so I had this, um, this I, I was just intrigued by this idea that there's some, th there's some things we can't know. There's some unanswerable questions. And those aren't on the edges. They often are at the heart of matters. And that... I found was a was a strong theme in Peck's work, and then getting involved in the the foundation for community encouragement. This idea of 
moving forward without knowing, which, um, you know, is pretty closely related to the idea of faith. <laughs> <laughs> Ta-da! Yeah. Ta <laughs> and so getting, getting, getting involved with our conversations early on, I discovered that um, your approach to um, the church, theology, Christianity, whatever, was was very much aligned or, or at least open to the kinds of thoughts I was having, and um, yeah, so that that's those were those were some of the very early books. There have been others <laughs> since then that have been influential, but th those were some of the foundational readings I did. Would it be is there a, is there a way to say this that you were fascinated? or intrigued by the questions uh, as opposed to trying to find rock solid answers. Yes, that's a that's very perceptive. That's an excellent way of putting it. Right. And not to uh, there was something I don't I don't know who um, delivered this nugget to me or maybe I've seen it you know at, years later, you know, you don't know where you got some of these ideas yes. where some of the stones came in this <laughs> yeah. foundation that you built but wherever i got it someone pointed out you know it's it's good to have questions it's good to question but it's um it's not good to make the unanswerable question as your religion to in, in a way then you're refusing to come right. to any answers and sometimes there there are answers of a sort that um, I think we're invited to uh, to take on, and that's yeah. <clears throat> that's yeah. I was just going to say I couldn't agree more on that. Absolutely, because sometimes people get lost or making uh, the questions are a form of idolatry, and um, and become absolutist in their rigidity. Because and then the person isn't actually open to finding an answer or hearing an answer, or right? Learning. Because right. then they say there is no answer, and that becomes their answer to everything. Exactly. <clears throat> it's strange exactly. how paradox keeps popping up <laughs> right. Right. if you push too hard. Um, right. So it was. I think. Uh, um, in a way, I came full circle back to the sort of Protestant services that I had grown up with. But this time I had a, a foundation and a, a richer understanding that, that I had that I had built, you know, brick yeah. by brick, book by book, conversation by conversation. And that's that's been very important. They were your answers. They were your way. It was your way in. Yes. I've often said um I've often had the thought that there is no such thing as a hand-me-down faith. Much to the chagrin of many church people, dogma dogmatic church people, who say we've got to instill in our kids the the faith. And um, and while I understand the I understand the impetus behind that, the fact is, if faith is going to be genuine one has to come to it on their own terms and and space needs to be created for ch even children to find their path into their faith that will take them the distance um 
a lot of church people are are scared to death of that that idea um and you know even as a parent myself i've had my own twinges of that over the years as i was raising my kids but at the end of the day it became very apparent that in order to love them best they had to find their way i i provided here's what i believe this is what i believe to be true i i uh live my life uh, out of this faith tradition. Um, now, you, f you find your path. I believe this to be true. You have to contend and name your truth as, as you go forward. And you know, my experience is that if, if it's honestly presented that way, children are never or rarely hostile to, to the idea of, of what their parents are expressing as their faith. They may or may not fully embrace it, but they won't be hostile to it. That's right. I think it, um, what, what I've experienced at Christ Church over the years is a spirit of invitation. Yes. Rather than any coercion. Correct. Coercion and, is not faith. You, if you coerce faith, what you end up with is not faith. Yeah, there's, there's some... There's <laughs> I, I, I don't know some, what you end up with. Brandon, well, yeah. what do you think? Does that ring true? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as somebody who has ran, has run in manipulative circles for a long time, <laughs> coercive circles, um, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it does nothing but eventually um, drive people away because, you know, if you're put into a situation where your position in that community is based on complete adherence to a set of beliefs and dogmas you're either at some point going to be leaving that community or you're at some point going to be pretending in that community those are your only two options uh, is leaving or pretending and i was at different parts of my life have definitely been right on the edge of just leaving altogether uh, not because i didn't feel like i had faith in god or or some um understanding or desire to uh, commune with the divine, but because I was like, I cannot co-sign this list anymore. And the pretending is killing me. And so I think that that, uh, I love what you said about an, um, an invitation instead of coercion. I, I think that's amazing. I think that that hits home for me for sure. Well, that, that has been my experience in this community and i um i think it's a little bit unusual i wouldn't say it's you know unique in all <laughs> spiritual communities in the world but it is a little bit unusual to both um it, it it's both i mean it's 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 not inviting people to uh make the community into anything it's not simply a sewing circle, you know. There is some structure to it. Um, but just the, the absence of any kind of coercion or threat, you know, the, the, the fear-based. You asked, Steve, what do we end up with, with coercion? I think you end up with fear. And um, I don't think that's, I don't think that's what God is trying to create in us is, is, just a, a life of fear. I don't think <laughs> that's what this is supposed to be. You know, Absolutely when, not. when I was uh, <clears throat> in seminary, 
I was probably uh, 22. I took a, an immersion course in New Testament Greek. Um, and we had to, as one of our assignments, translate the first letter of John in an, in an exam setting. It's a very short little book. But there is a phrase in that that goes like this. Um, there is no fear in God. Perfect love casts out all fear. And that as I was translating, you know how this is when you're meticulously trying to work at something technically, you're not necessarily paying attention to what it is you're actually, in this case, translating. Except that after I finished that, it leapt off the page and smacked me across the face. And I, I never lost it. It was a, it actually was a converting moment for me of a certain sort. Perfect love casts out all fear. And I recognized, it dawned on me, that the opposite of love is not hate. It is fear. And that has absolutely been instrumental in how I have been forming my theology and ministry over the course of my life. If we're making people afraid in our theology, we're missing the point. Right. And that's, I think that's well said. Um, and it's not to say that a faith journey means it's, it's all, you know, what is it? What do they say? It's all, uh, it's all chocolate and roses. Peaches and cream. Peaches and cream. <laughs> Pick your because, favorite. <laughs> because we all, it's all, it's just smooth sailing from here on out. No, no, no. it's, but, um, there's, there's real there's risk involved i think in an authentic uh faith but that's risk that someone freely chooses to take rather than being pushed or manipulated or coerced into doing something into taking right. the risk right it was uh, always framed for me as if you choose to to live in this way of not embracing fear and you know allowing your questions and different things like that that it would basically mean that you were living a faith that just fit with your understanding of the world and all of your preferences and had no uh you know effect on your life because you're essentially just choosing to believe whatever you believe in the moment and i'm like that is completely untrue i feel like my faith runs up contrary to everything i want to do now far more than it did when I was following a list of like prescribed answers to every question, it's like now it rubs up against every inclination that I have towards my enemies and towards the people in my life who are difficult and the situations that I'd rather ignore. It, it runs contrary to all of that. Yeah. I, I said in an earlier podcast, I think that if love is my byword, if you will, for how I live my life, if I'm going to love well, it, it that is exceedingly difficult. <laughs> and probably the most demanding thing I could be assigning myself if I'm going to love well. Yes. Yeah. Well, Mark, okay, so I think we did a better job on the faith piece than you thought you were going to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but but let's let's segue because um, I want to get to uh, some of these other matters that are uh, important to you. Is there a transition here? Like, 
maybe on the basis of what matters and because faith becomes a grounding kind of aspect of our lives as you were intimating earlier how does that then lead us into your your passions um, and maybe we maybe we should just pause for a moment and just tell us some of your professional activities and then we can enter that question i've been in my career for about 25 years and for um 22 or so years i've been running this little consulting firm trying to advise companies on how to make technology especially online technology better for the people who use it the users or the customers or the students the patients whoever and for a number of years as the online economy um was really vibrant and um, and multifaceted, the company did fairly well. It was, um, we had an office and employees and everything um, for a number of years. And then uh, after the financial crisis of 2008, things started to get a little bit tighter, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And as of a few years ago, I found myself once again working solo as I had uh, at the beginning of my career when I when I first founded the company. And I tell you this to um, explain that I have seen the technology industry over the last quarter century go through many transformations and especially the internet uh, and, and the World Wide Web, um, which I've been on almost since it was invented. I mean, I, I um, saw my first web page in 1993 on the original web browser, NCSA Mosaic. So I've been here since the beginning, and I met a lot of the people who went on to um, found or lead some of the biggest companies that are active today. So I know a lot of the players. And over the last few years, I noticed a distinct change in the online environment. I'd say over the last, uh, well, since 13 or so. So let's say over the last seven years. And about three years ago, I, um, with some extra time on my hand, <laughs> um, started my own podcast, <clears throat> which actually is uh, actually a radio show is broadcast over the FM airwaves in the New York area <clears throat> out of a uh, radio station based in Jersey City called WFMU. So I've now run this show. It's called Tectonic. I've run this show um, for three years and a couple months. And I have had the opportunity to interview about 150 people authors, journalists, activists who have done their own research on how things have changed in technology over the last few years. And um, I have to tell you, it has been such an eye-opening experience to run this show. I've learned more about technology from this show <clears throat> in the last three years than I probably learned in the you know, 20 years of running the consulting firm before that. Um, and it's opened my eyes 
not only to how things actually work, but to some of the really um, harmful and dangerous things that are happening in our world because of uh, a handful of technology companies. And so that's the, that has really activated my sense of um, indignation at, at um, injustice in a way that I had I had not been activated before. And so that's an interesting way to put it, that you have been indignant at the injustice. Um, and those are words that would be uh, linked, I think, probably to your to your moral fabric. That is, they, they, they emerge out of who you are. And, um, and you've identified this arena as a place that you bring special expertise and a point of view that has been formed over the years uh, that for the sake of the common good. Is that a way to kind of summarize something, some aspect of this? Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair way to put it. I mean, I had always been interested in trying to make technology good or helping others make technology good. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, it's interesting, there was, <laughs> there was an intersection between treating people well and with respect and the company making money. As we long as there was, we should tell people what the name of your business is. It's called Creative Good, right? And, and all, 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 my work is there at CreativeGood.com, and I ran a conference uh, called Gel for about fifteen years that spotlighted a lot of projects and technologies that were actually good for people. And I wrote a couple of books along the way to try to show how technology could help people <laughs> and spotlight projects and teams that were doing a good job. I mean, I've, I have been at this for a while, but it has only been in the last few years that things have gotten so bad. I mean, they have dramatically changed, Steve. They've yeah. dramatically changed and in some really awful ways. And I was, I said, I, I have to say something. This is completely um, unacceptable and I don't have a huge platform, but I have to at least be on record as having spoken out. Um, and uh, there was something else I was gonna say. And as I have explored that, you know, moral indignation, um, I have seen more and more uh, parallels and connections to my faith, to uh, w what I understand uh, are the, you know, the, the spiritual underpinnings of things. And th so that the, the faith journey has been part of the foundation on, on which I have stood in order to make some of these judgments and, um, and speak out in the way that I have in the same way that, you know, my background f for so long in the technology industry has been another part of that foundation. Yeah. I think it's important for the listeners say, cause Mark has a bit of an aw shucks attitude about who he is and how he situates himself. But he's uh, he's been, you know, particularly in the 90s, when I first got to know him at the age of 25, he was kind of a hot ticket in his field. What happened? The, 
<laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> Whatever happened to that guy? In in the emerging technology world, and the conferences that he is talking about, GEL, which stands for Good Experience Live, were very dynamic New York-based experience that drew, I don't know how many thousands of people over the years, Mark, into conversation about how to uh, make a better world technologically, especially through the internet. So I just wanted to make sure, I wanted to underscore your bona fides here because you, because you can tend to downplay your own expertise. Well, you, <laughs> <laughs> well, and just just think about all of the, you said 150 interviews with some of the most seminal thinkers today on the very topics that are interesting to you and that you're driving. And that leads me to ask you, our listeners would probably like to know, so what's wrong with the internet? What got, what got uh, bad over, the, over these last several years? What's going down? Well, you can look at the surface outcomes that um, people now have finally have greater awareness about um, from there's a new Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma that um, goes into part of the effects. That, and that's worth watching. A lot of news stories have come out. Um, it's just people understand better um, what's been happening. For instance, uh, the rise of dis disinformation and election interference. We're in an election season. Um, people know that uh, Facebook has been a bad actor on that for a number of years. Um, the manipulation of search results to benefit, in, in Google's case, to benefit Google's own properties rather than giving users um, the best results the snuffing out of competition and i'm talking about family-owned um, uh, honest you know inventors and small businesses get snuffed out by amazon because it misuses its marketplace to look at what products are doing well so it can then uh, put them out of business and undercut them um, apple engaging in usury uh, taking 30 percent of artists, creators, uh, small startup companies, revenues in order to um, uh, fully monetize its chokehold on the, uh, the iOS software ecosystem. Um, the genocide in Southeast Asia, the, the genocide of, the, uh, of uh, Muslims in Myanmar that was aided and abetted by Facebook's monetization algorithm. Um, and this is not just me. I'm, I'm referring to a United Nations report that specifically called out Facebook's role in genocide. Um, the serving up of child videos, um, innocent um, family vacation videos of kids on a beach to pedophiles by Google's YouTube recommendation algorithm for profit. Uh, the layering on of advertising on terrorist videos for profit, the layering of advertising on pirated uh, videos and music for profit that profits Google. I mean, Steve, I could go on, but any sort of um, awful uh, cheating, lying, murder, and, and so on 
for profit goes on at the hands of these four companies, and that's just those four companies: Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple. I could I could go into other companies. Um, it's a as I <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm dumping a lot on you right here, but the the internet has has ceased to be just this place, kind of a wild west where people can misbehave once in a while and maybe there's a little bit of uh, naughty behavior. It has turned into the biggest organization of criminal behavior on the part of public companies. Some of the richest companies in human history are daily engaged in criminal behavior. And our economy, our economy is addicted to it. It is absolutely beyond the pale. And that, that's, that, those are just the surface effects, but I'll let you talk. <laughs> uh, <yeah>, I'm breathless. <laughs> but um, I, I'm, um, gosh, y y the way you presented it is, is massive and big. And um, how do we wrap our arms around this? Um, yeah. I, I feel like I have a question, you know, as somebody who is currently looking at uh, Chrome, has an iPhone in my pocket, uh, engaging with friends and family on Facebook earlier today, posting to Instagram for my band, like how do I make a concerted effort against what you're talking about like you, you know what i mean like i in some ways i feel so plugged in to these things and they're such a part of the ecosystem that moves what i'm interested in forward which like my band that i play shows with you know it's like how do we communicate it's like i i want to know from your experience and like you study this you know how can i make better decisions in order to change this trajectory well, that's a great question, um, and I've I've been asked that question plenty of times. Um, and what you're uh, bringing up, I, I'm going to assume. I don't know the details about how you're connected and the, you know your your band's uh, social media presence and all of that. But I'm going to assume that where you're coming from is a place of look. These are the platforms I have to use in order to keep in touch with my family, in order to promote my band shows. And like, mm. th there are not a lot of other options. And that is exactly the problem, that these companies are out of control because there are no alternatives. Um, right. There's is a this book the equivalent of the antitrust, Teddy Roosevelt and antitrust? Is that, a, is that one kind of version of a model we're talking about? Oh, yes. Well. Um, there's a book, and this is on my mind because I just, a couple hours ago, interviewed the author. There's a book called The Death of the Artist by William Derezovitz. Um He's the author who a few years ago wrote about the Ivy League, this book called Excellent Sheep. His new book, um, The Death of the Artist, talks about artists, including musicians, Brandon, and, and bands, and how they're being squeezed by these big tech platforms. And um, he's very realistic, you know? If, if you have to use Instagram to get the word out about your shows, then use Instagram. Um, but just know that you're being forced to be a part of this really, really toxic system. 
the remedies that we're going to, I mean, you can take some um, little steps and I think everybody can take some little steps as individuals um, just in principle. You know, I'd never use Chrome. Um, I'd never use any Google product for that matter. If I can, if I can avoid it, there are other browsers, there are other search engines. Um, I try not to, I don't, I mean, I've, I've deleted my Facebook account um, a while ago and so if I want to reach out to people, I use email. That's a free publicly shared protocol for communication. I don't use Facebook. I don't use Instagram. Um, I, I do use Twitter. So that's a complication. But um, other than little individual actions, we need systemic change. And there are a few things we can do. But the, the number one best piece of news on the systemic front right now is that Congress looks serious about antitrust. Like you said, Steve, it's a little bit like 100 years ago. There's a book called Goliath by Matt Stoller. Um, There's a few books on monopolies, but Goliath is a good one to to, um, explicitly draw a comparison between the robber barons of 100 years ago and the Gilded Age with the big tech hegemony today. And I'm sorry to say it doesn't look good. I mean, in, in many ways, our uh, era right now is much more concentrated yeah. in wealth and power than it even was in the time of Rockefeller and Carnegie. And we are in, I mean, this this economy and the society is in desperate need of some remedy to the consolidation because of, and this is where any anyone of faith should be concerned about this, the extreme and widening inequality in wealth and income in this country is immoral and wrong. And it's being, the, the gas pedal is being floored by these four companies, as well as others in, in Silicon Valley and their, the, their partners, the venture capital firms, uh, the hedge funds, the Wall Street banks that are, that are all profiting off of this. It is an economy built on exploitation and Brandon, read that book. Read, read the death of the artist, and you'll see, and maybe you'll you'll um, be able to relate to some of these stories of musicians that are having such a tough time at getting compensated for for their work. Um, but it affects whether you're a musician, a writer, or just any sort of professional. You're either being squeezed now, or you will be squeezed soon. In, in a completely exploitative, unjust system. And so I just, I hope that this somewhat bipartisan effort in Congress can really lead to um, breakups and much, much greater fines. Um, in an ideal world, we'd also see some criminal um, penalties and maybe some prison time for some of the leaders at, at these companies. But um, if we can simply break up the companies, that'd be a good place to start. There is a lot more to be said about this. I'm wondering about our time. Um, oh, I'm just getting started, Steve. I know, I know. <laughs> Brandon, where are we in our time? Because what I'm thinking is this is worthy of having uh, more conversation in, and we could revisit this in specifically. I'm also thinking you would be a great uh, leader of a some kind of learning experience about all of this as well. Yeah, um, happy to. I, I, I do, I do want to say this though for, for the podcast listeners, anyone who subscribes to 
any life of faith uh, that, that believes that we have a higher calling as human beings than to, you know, simply claw out as much money as we can from our neighbor. Anyone who has, who has any sense of faith must take a look at their relationship to digital technology. You have to get more aware about what you're using and how these services and these platforms are affecting the world. This is a spiritual issue. It's a deeply spiritual issue if you look into it. And I, I, I'm not going to be prescriptive about what people should do about it, but simply to strongly encourage people to gain some awareness rather than saying, as people used to do, oh, that's just computers, that's over there. The, the, the degree to which right. these platforms have affected our lives make them a, a, an urgent area of concern. Yeah. Um, what do you think, Brandon? Can we, should we pause here and then look for another occasion to take this further, like a part two? Yeah, I, de I definitely think so. Um, we could come back with some, some pointed questions yeah. about things. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I wanted Mark to have a chance to uh, lead us into thinking deeply about this. And my suspicion is that most of us haven't thought about this much at all. We kind of take for granted the platforms that are in front of us and see them as kind of benign instruments of communication when as we are learning more and more, especially in an election season, that they can have immense power um, that are driven by these algorithms that collect people in uh, insidious ways and encouraging certain behaviors, if not necessarily explicitly, but implicitly because of how they are organized and function. Mark, maybe is there, if we had one or two books that you'd recommend that the average listener might want to get into? I know that's, what do you think? What would be a good entry point? Um, well, first I'd, I'd point people to my podcast. <laughs> well, that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, there you go. There you go. Actually, yeah, that's very true. I mean, because those are very digestible bits with very smart, thoughtful persons in conversation with you. That's very good. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, they're, they're brief introductions to the books and you can get to all of them at tectonic.fm that's t-e-c-h tonic.fm and just scroll down and there's a link that'll get you right to the beginning of each interview if you're interested to skip my um my intro but uh as for as for books um well one i would definitely recommend is the the one i talked about the death of the artist by william derezovitz it's just out and it's about artists, but the patterns really apply to all of us. And he gets into the underlying economic effects. Um, another one that I liked a lot um, is called Don't Be Evil. And it's by a Financial Times uh, journalist named Rana Faruhar, um, F-O-R-O-O-H-A-R. And I, I interviewed her as well a few months ago. Um, and that... It gets into really the many uh, sins of big tech with a focus on Google, but um, but it gets into the others as well. And 
watch the Netflix movie called The Social Dilemma, although I think it's, um, it's flawed in some ways. It, it, it's incomplete, but for a very, very basic introduction to some of the effects, that's, that's a very accessible place to start. That's great. Well, thanks so much for having this conversation. You're invested in something very important. I suspect it's just at the tip of the iceberg right at the moment in terms of gaining um, traction in the wider culture. Um, I really appreciate you sharing about your faith's journey. Um, good. It was a good, good conversation. Enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. I enjoyed it too. Um, thanks, Steve and Brandon. And uh, I remain an enthusiastic listener of Chasing Faith. <laughs> thanks, Mark. That's a great way to end. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>